manufacturers in particular, we rely on energy being available 24 seven, 365. A lot of us for our margins have to run literally year round with very few shutdowns. When we're taken down unexpectedly by something like a power outage, that's a tremendous cost burden that can drive you out of business. And I'm a little disappointed there aren't more manufacturing people speaking up that, you know, nothing wrong with moving in the direction of renewables, but we better have a plan and we better demonstrate that we can provide reliable energy on the basis we need it before we leap. Unfortunately, we're leaping and then looking at this point. You're listening to Transform Talks, the podcast about global supply chain transformation. I'm Maria Villablanca, co-founder and CEO of Future Insights Network, a fast-growing network of over 130,000 supply chain and manufacturing executives worldwide. Now on this show, I'm going to be interviewing and having conversations with some of the biggest names in supply chain and business, where we're going to be discussing topics around digitization, transformation, leadership, technology, business models, diversity, sustainability, and much, much more. Welcome back to Transform Talks. This week, my guest is Jim Vinosky. Jim is an industry executive who spent decades in manufacturing, focusing predominantly on engineering, operations, and management. During his 30-year career, he's helped companies such as Ralston, Purina, and General Mills make products ranging from food to plastics and paints to bourbon. Jim is currently the president of Cosgrove Content, which provides writing and editing services. Away from this, Jim writes a regular column for Forbes magazine and hosts the Manufacturing Talks podcast, where he interviews the movers and shakers in the industrial world. I'm really happy to have Jim on the show. As you'll soon hear, Jim takes a slightly different view on the transition towards renewable energy. I've always been keen to have as many different points of view as possible in the podcast, and it's for this reason why I'm really happy that Jim agreed to be on the show. Throughout this episode, Jim and I discuss his love of 80s rock bands, why the transition towards renewable energy won't be as straightforward as many people think, and what the future of manufacturing will look like. I hope you enjoy. Hey Jim, welcome to Transform Talks. How you doing? Good, thank you Maria. I'm fine. How are you? Good. So I, you know, I always get a bit weird when I have to interview a fellow podcaster because I think you do this for a living. You know, I don't know when they interview me, I feel like at the same time, I'm like, oh, this is feels so weird to be interviewed, right? So maybe we could start with a little bit, just briefly tell me the kind of people you interview in your podcast and, and, and maybe tell me a little bit about why you started it. Uh, my podcast and web show is called Manufacturing Talk. So it's kind of self-explanatory. I talk to people working in all kind of facets of manufacturing. So talk to a lot of manufacturers themselves, people who have their own companies or work for large companies um, doing cool stuff in manufacturing. I talk to people who might have something to say that would have, you know, relevance to the manufacturing community. Um, You know, I just like to kind of branch out and tell those stories that are going to be important first to my main manufacturing audience, but then also hopefully to a broader audience. You know, one of the things that I like to talk about in my podcast is about the fact that I feel like we've done a disservice to the manufacturing and supply chain industry by not making it sound as good as it is or as exciting as it is right now. I feel like we we don't do a good enough job at making manufacturing or supply chain sexy enough. And the world has woken up due to the pandemic and a lot of crisis, right, to 
the importance of a strong manufacturing supply chain industry. So what's your take on that? What do you think? I agree 100%. I think one of the root causes is we've been victims of our own success. You know, historically, manufacturing across the board has provided a really good career, really good jobs, good pay. And so we didn't have to necessarily compete too vigorously to get the people we needed. And clearly that over time has changed and the pandemic really changed it quite a bit, where now it's uh, it's definitely a buyer's market when it comes to employers or employees out there. And so unfortunately, you know, we didn't have that skill set of selling ourselves and explaining how cool manufacturing is. And we're kind of playing catch up now and necessarily so everyone across the board is struggling to get the people they need and the skills they need. And so uh, people are learning fast, but yeah, it's definitely a learning process at this point. Yeah, but we don't have the time to see this. This is my view is that, you know, with the pace of change of technology, with the way that the world is moving, uh, not just from a technological perspective, right, but like the, the economy, geopolitical, all the things that are going on, we need to make some quick movements to you know steady the i guess maybe to, sh to essentially make manufacturing a very important part of our regional economies our local economies bring young talent into the game and get them to buy into supply chain and manufacturing as something that's important and innovative right you're right yeah we do we do need to move fast yeah. Now, so how do we do it? Like you said, we got to make this cool. You know, we've got to make this an option, not just for university degrees. I'm talking about going into younger children and talking to them about how important this is. Right. And uh, I don't think we're moving fast enough. And, and then one of the things that I talk about as well is a lot of the crises that are hitting our industry these days. Uh, one of them being sort of energy crisis. And I want to talk to you a little bit about, because I know you've got some sort of interesting opinions about renewable energy and about the impact of this on the manufacturing industry. So maybe maybe walk me through a little bit of that. Yeah, let me preface it with, I have no beef with renewable energy. I mean, you know, windmills and, and photovoltaics have been around for a long time and serving needs for a long time. And we can certainly aggressively make them part of the greater mix. The trouble is we're jumping into making them part of the grid uh, generation capacity that we rely on. And you start to see breakdowns already. Um, you know, Texas a few years ago, everyone argues that renewable energy wasn't the cause. No, renewable energy wasn't the cause, but renewable energy contributed almost nothing during that crisis, during the winter storm a couple of years ago. And people literally died. And that's what I try to stress is if we get this wrong, people die. Um, manufacturers in particular, we rely on energy being available 24-7, 365. A lot of us for our margins have to run literally year round with very few shutdowns. When we're taken down unexpectedly by something like a power outage, that's a tremendous cost burden that can drive you out of business. And I'm a little disappointed there aren't more manufacturing people speaking up that, you know, nothing wrong with moving in the direction of renewables, but we better have a plan and we better demonstrate that we can provide reliable energy on the basis we need it before we leap. Unfortunately, we're leaping and then looking at this point. The key word here in what you said is reliable, right? Because you don't have, like you said, you don't have any beef with renewable energy. It doesn't matter which energy we use to some degree in your opinion, but it's it's about the reliability. And do you think that the 
the whole renewable energy conversation is so fixated on the innovation side, on the sort of like the, the, the greenwashing side of things and not on actual problem solving of repairing the existing grid and how that's going to uh, have an impact on what we're currently dealing with. It's again, the whole shiny new object syndrome. Let's, let's go after this really cool thing over there and not, and fix it on top of a, right? On, on top of what we already have, which is a mess, right? Yeah, there's a couple different threads there. The, the creaky grid itself and the fact that we're in investing in this bright, shiny object, well, there's only so much investment to go around. So if we're in investing heavily in renewables, that's money that necessarily is not going into upkeep and maintenance of the existing grid. And so, for example, that breakdown in Texas was because it hadn't winterized its grid to handle that kind of weather. Well, why didn't they? Because they didn't have enough money to go around. They were investing heavily in renewables. You know, Reliability is key. Another, another key for manufacturers is cost. And so as we add heavily with renewables, you know, everyone talks about storage. Storage at grid capacity does not exist. And so what do we rely on as backup when the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow? It's those fossil fuel plants the renewables are supposedly replacing. And so we're paying for the same generating capacity twice. We're paying for the maintenance twice. Costs skyrocket when you add heavily on renewables to the grid. And until we get a better storage answer, that's going to be the case. And we've got to move at a more uh, measured pace and develop that storage technology along the way so that we're not just saying, oh, storage will take care of it. And then it's not there. We're actually adding it as part of a, an overall plan. But isn't that sort of like, I don't know, symptomatic of the kind of um, apathy we have in the, in the business world in general to follow, I don't know if apathy is the right thing, but to follow sort of that, that new thread, this new idea that we're doing without fixing processes or looking at the consequences of things. Or maybe it's even sort of this narrow, uh, short-sighted view of um, navel-gazing. We look inside and we're sort of just looking and we don't even look at the outside world. I'll, I'll give you another example because uh, I read this article about how uh, now that the world and the government's all fixated on telling people that they should buy electric vehicles, right? Because the electric vehicle market and then there's regulations by 2025, by 2035, et cetera, et cetera. But yet there's been nothing to address infrastructure changes such as roads because these cars are heavier such as parking lots, even parking garages, you know, like multi-tiered parking garages are old. They were built, a lot of them, decades ago, right? And yet these cars weigh a lot more where there's no talk about the recycling of these, these batteries or what are we going to do with these old vehicles? Do you know what I mean? Like there's just so many questions, in my opinion, that are beyond just the, oh, I'm green, I'm going to buy an electric vehicle. So do you see that? Do you see that with, other, with manufacturing as, or as a business issue? As a manufacturing old hand, what I see is this complete lack of planning and evaluation and consideration of alternatives, consideration of opportunity costs. Like you say, we're leaping to these bright, shiny objects, and we're not thinking about all the implications. And you laid out a bunch of them. You know, I just had a, an article uh, in my Forbes uh, column about mining. Copper in, in particular, there's not going to be enough copper to do all the electrification plans that we have laid out that we have mandated already. And that's just a fact. You know, I've talked to top experts in the copper industry and, and the pace of 
of approval of new mines is lagging. The old mines are getting depleted. The, the concentration of ore as we mine more and more goes down and down, and so it takes more and more to get the same amount, and we're not considering any of that. And so we, we can mandate things all we want, and then we're going to get caught by these harsh realities that the, uh, the minerals just aren't there to support that. And then, yeah, you get into those other problems with infrastructure and, and the roads and the parking garages where if we do load them up with these vehicles that weigh 50%, 100% more than existing vehicles, then what's the implication there? I think <laughs> it doesn't take a genius to figure it out, right? And Jim, you, you hit upon something that's quite important to me because I, I was originally born in Chile. So that's, and my father's from the north, which is where the copper industry is huge in, in Chile. I've seen the impact of, like quite literally, I've actually seen the impact of copper mining, lithium mining, what it does to the region. And I think that we're just jumping into things. So I want to talk a little bit more about the business element from a manufacturer. You, you keep saying, I'm an old hand. So I mean, I'm going to throw another type of question at you, which is, how do you think the industry has changed since you got into it? You know, what have been the biggest changes that you've seen? Well, it's funny because you mentioned that technology was moving so quickly that we were behind on the people front. That actually is one of the benefits, too. Technology has changed the reality of manufacturing dramatically to where if we play our cards right, playing up that technology and the new face of manufacturing where it's not dark and dirty and dangerous, it's high tech and it's clean and it's a great place to work. That's been a huge change through my career. Not that there wasn't automation when I started uh, more years ago than I want to talk about, but it's just come so far in leaps and bounds on the level of automation and the level of interconnectedness and just the technologies that are at play anymore. It's a huge opportunity, uh, and I hope we're able to grab it. You know, the other thing, too, is I'm a big fan of you know, American manufacturing, and I think we're uniquely poised now with all those problems you mentioned about COVID and the supply chain breakdowns to reshore a lot of our manufacturing, bring in a lot of new plants, attract uh, a lot of new manufacturing activity. And I just fear that with these missteps that we talked about earlier that we're going to get caught out you know, as years go on. And that's probably because, do you think that their government should get involved more in these kinds of decisions? Uh, do you think that it's lack of vision with the businesses themselves or a level of complacency? Just had a newsletter on that about, I, I keep hearing the talk about resilience, resilience. Everywhere you go, the buzzword these days is resilience. And I feel like there's a lot of surface level talk about resilience, but really it's about, I'm worried that pe my fear is that we're falling into that complacency again. This belief that resilience is I've got a couple of things in place just in case something happens. But that to me, resilience, the true definition of it is, is being adaptable and agile enough to move to whatever comes next because we can't predict it. So do, do you think a lot of the problems are that, are the fact that we're not focused on the places that we should be focused on? Yeah, <laughs> I could talk about that endlessly. I think if you look at the broad landscape, you mentioned governments, and you know governments are always going to have a part to play. But I think governments have gotten so out of control and big, and you know just such an overburden to all of business that we've really lost sight of letting people, you know, on the front lines and at the ground level drive what's needed. The market 
will solve problems because you have you know, literally millions of people working on the problems versus if we looked at the COVID years when these self-appointed experts told everyone what to do and they got everything wrong. Leaving it up to markets where you have literally millions of people all trying things and learning through experimentation and throwing out the stuff that doesn't work uh, because that's what they're paid to do. I'm a huge believer in that. And so to me, regulation has gotten out of control. We should not be adding regulations. We should be cutting back on regulations, not in a way that puts us at risk. But, you know, when I'm filling out multiple forms of paperwork for different departments for the same thing, that takes away from my ability to become resilient. Um, I think to the same extent we talked about people not considering all the, the the scenarios and the potential outcomes of things that we move on, that's true in business too. I think you look at the way corporations are structured now and the people who are making the big decisions are so far removed from the day-to-day, -day, they're not hearing what the real problems are. And so that's another piece I think we should pare back. I think bureaucracy at all levels has got to be pared back and we've got to get the key decision makers closer to where the work is happening. Yeah, it's a very good point. How do you think the, that COVID and the last couple of years have changed the manufacturing industry? Well, again, there's a lot of good there. Look at what American manufacturing did during COVID. You know, first of all, a lot of it was considered essential. And so you had people going out in very uncertain times, very fearful times. They still showed up to do their work. They, yeah, there were pickups, there were shortages and such. We never ran, ran out of anything for any extended period of time. And the American worker should be applauded for how they delivered during those tough times. Then also we find out there's whole swaths of industry where it doesn't exist in America anymore. PPE and respirator parts and things like that, that we literally couldn't get from the places overseas that we relied upon. What did American manufacturing do? They shifted gears. A lot of these that weren't considered essential went into things that were considered essential, kept themselves open, and knocked the ball out of the park on providing things that suddenly we couldn't get. And so that alone, to me, just makes manufacturing one of the key heroes of the COVID era. And then, again, to repeat, that led to opportunities. People understand now that, okay, just in time, we don't throw it out the window, but it also doesn't work uh, necessarily the way we like it to when crises hit. And so we better have plans in place to make sure that these far-flung supply chains aren't our lifeline. And so again, huge opportunity to reshore, to bring things closer, maybe not everything, but certainly some of it, and continue to grow our domestic manufacturing. To, to me, a lot of it is about transforming, not just um, you know from a digital transformation perspective. It's about rethinking business models, rethinking the way that we've operated. I mean, I'm old enough, that is, and I'm sure you are, to remember the whole NAFTA thing and the great idea that we had back in the 90s to outsource everything. And there's an opportunity now, you know, we keep hearing about nearshoring, onshoring, friendshoring, uh, all kinds of shoring up. And I think we've identified that we live in a risky world, in a risky time uh, as well. And so... I think that we all have to bolster up our own uh, supply chains, our manufacturing capabilities, our ability to source raw materials, 
uh, etc. Do you think that the years ahead are going to be marked with a transformative sort of business operating models in manufacturing? Yeah, absolutely. It's funny that you mentioned those three key elements, uh, reshoring, nearshoring, friendshoring. Those are the exact same three that a guy named Cedric Nika, who I interviewed both for my show and for Forbes a few weeks ago, that he mentioned as opportunity for his company. He's the CEO of Siemens uh, Digital Industries. So one of the key players in where I think manufacturing does have a, a fundamental transformation, and that's in digitalizing. And you know, we think about it on the manufacturing floor and in automation and connectivity, and that's a piece of it. But what Cedric talked quite a bit about, and what I've actually been talking about for a while now, is the biggest opportunities, especially for small and middle-sized manufacturers, may not even be on their floor. It may be in their business processes. So digitalization is from one end of the supply chain to the other, and it's a a business imperative now to be looking at your operation and identifying, okay, where can I automate with the new tools that are available that's going to give me the biggest bang for the buck? You know, it could be in your procurement process. It could be in your shipping, or it could be in adding new automation or improving the automation you have on your manufacturing floor. So it's, uh, to me, a bright, shining time, again, if, if we play our car cards right and we're smart about it. Completely agree with you, Jim. I think that out of crisis comes opportunity. I mean, you have to look at it that way, don't you? Uh, out of crisis can come opportunity. I think we have an opportunity here as well, not, not only to do all the things that you just mentioned, but look at new revenue generation models as well. Uh, look at the circular economy, invest in sustainability, in things that will um, be valuable, value-adding for not just uh, our customers and shareholders, but our employees. So I, I, I agree. I think to me, we live in an exciting time, albeit a dangerous, risky time, but an exciting time in the hands of those people that are visionary enough to see the opportunities that lie ahead. So quick predictions. Where do you think manufacturing will be in the next couple of years? Oh, I think we're well positioned for the next couple of years. There, again, there are so many people out there, so many good people, very intelligent people working on all these things that we're talking about. Uh, I do think we're extremely well positioned to continue to to expand and to grow really manufacturing across the board, but especially that domestic opportunity for the U.S. My bigger concern is over the long haul because, again, if we continue to degrade our power generation capabilities, if we continue to add regulation and cost, then we can miss out on the longer term opportunities because we just can't compete. You know, the, the automation is what allows us to compete. We're never going to compete on a manual labor basis with the developing countries. And, and that's just fine. You know, we want to play to our strengths and hopefully bring them along to be uh, where we are in a few more years. But if we don't go after those opportunities and provide the essentials that we need for our manufacturers to compete, it's all going to go back overseas. I agree. But I also think that um, we're going to be living or we are living in the era of automation and uh, we'll find that eventually automation will make things cheaper than even manual labor were, you know, was years ago. So uh, it's an opportunity for innovation and uh, to drive down costs as well. So I want to ask you a question because we're running out of time and I, I, I usually have a question that I ask everybody and I'm going to get to it. But one of the things that I read in my notes was that you are a massive 
rock band fanatic. And, and I think that that's pretty cool because, well, you know, my, uh, my podcast team writes a lot of these notes and I thought, I'm sorry, who isn't an eighties rock band fanatic? Uh, you're talking to a Gen Xer, you know, please come on. Um, so I'm, I'm into all that stuff too, but what, what's the relevance or, you know, in your ideal sort of rock band, uh, you know, what's the, what do you think of how it relates to manufacturing? And what's your favorite band as well? Oh, okay. Well, let me start with the first question. It's an interesting relation. I got to thinking when I first started my show, what should my background be? And I went out and got a bunch of posters from all the bands I listened to growing up. Now, I was a heavy metal headbanger, and actually, I still am decades later. So I got Iron Maiden and Judas Priest and you know, my newest band I had was Disturbed, so we're still going back 20 years. Um, so all these old bands, all these heavy metal bands, I figured would be a great kind of tie in general, you know, heavy metal for manufacturing. But then, too, I threw in a couple posters from a buddy of mine named Corey Bonnet in Pittsburgh, who is an artist who does steel industry-related art. And so I had a couple of his posters. They were... Um, print versions of two of his steel mill paintings behind me as well. And then one band in particular, Judas Priest, had an album called British Steel. And that's another tie because British Steel was kind of uh, an ode to the old British steelmaking industry. And so there's just all these threads of what I do and what they do that I think run together in a really cool way. Well, on, on that note, let me finish with my last question that I ask all my guests. If there was a book um, that has, whether it's personal, business, that's made an impact in your life, then why? Uh, I'll go with the current book. I'm a big reader, so I could give you dozens. But I just finished one called The Next American Economy by Samuel Gregg. And it goes into general economic concepts of how we can best play our hand these days. But it also goes quite a bit into the manufacturing realm and things like industrial policy and why he doesn't think a you know heavy-handed industrial policy is a good idea or is going to take us the way we need to go. So I highly recommend that one. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Jim, and uh, thanks for being on Transform Talks. I'm sure we look forward to my audience to checking out your podcast and equally your articles in Forbes. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you. I enjoyed it. So that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. I do hope you gained some valuable insight from this week's episode. To stay up to date with the latest developments, be sure to follow us on LinkedIn at Transform Talks. Also, if you don't already follow me on LinkedIn, please do so now. I'm always keen to connect with supply chain and business leaders from around the world. You can find me by searching for Maria P. Villablanca. And if you're lucky, I may let you know what the P in my name stands for. In the meantime, wishing you a great week ahead. And as always, for those of you listening, I'll catch you at the next one.